Welcome back to the first episode of season two of the Well Played podcast. This year, we're going to focus on name image likeness, NIL deals. Um, yes, we have been on hiatus, but when the world of sports has been rocked with the recent Supreme Court ruling allowing athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness, we knew it was time for us to come out of the athlete book development lab and onto the mic. And with me today, we have an awesome guest. She's the host of the podcast, Speaking of Athletes. She's an NIL name image likeness expert, even though she wouldn't call herself, I will. She is an attorney, an athlete advocate. She was the ACC chair of the Division I Student Athlete Advisory Committee. Please welcome our good friend, Miss Maddie Solomon. What's going on, Maddie? Come on in. Hey, Ryan. Now, we've done that twice now, and uh, I think I brought the energy both times. What do you think? It's great. Yeah. Just couldn't get the video on this time. I, I feel as though if you had stock, it has risen, you know, because there's not a lot of people that are in this name image likeness space. You do a really good job of breaking it down, which is some of the things I want to talk about in this podcast. I want to go through some deals, but I wanted to kind of set um, precedent of just some basic questions that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, a lot. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, the recent Supreme Court ruling, uh, did it put an immediate end to amateurism? So no, it didn't. And I, I think there have been a lot of people out there talking about it. And that's mostly because of what else the court kind of said in making its decision. But ultimately, that that case was about education-related benefits, um, and and that was it. It was it was very limited. It didn't go beyond that into other compensation rules, including NIL. It didn't address that at all. Um, so what it did was was a very sort of limited thing. But in doing that, it also addressed a lot of the arguments and basically called out the NCAA and and effectively rendered their their arguments useless. I think moving forward. Uh, it, it also eliminated one of the cases that they've relied on forever, uh, a 1984 case, it's known as Board of Regents. And the NCAA had relied on that for a long time to say that it had some sort of antitrust exemption or granted it some sort of lesser review by the courts than rule of reason, um, or otherwise that you know its, its rules were sort of above the law and, and that they were sort of valid as a matter of law. And they, they really, they said that over and over again. So this case sort of definitively from the highest court in the land said, no, that's never what the Supreme Court said at all. You've been misinterpreting this. And they were relying on what was known as dicta. So it's extra commentary in a case that a judge will throw in that really doesn't have to do with what is that issue in the case. And so they had relied on, on, you know, these bits and pieces of information. What's interesting is that, um, you know, Judge Kavanaugh also uh, wrote a concurrence in this case. And a lot of people have talked about that because he went many steps further than even what the, the actual opinion said. Um, and, you know, really attacked the NCA's arguments and indicated that if the compensate if the other compensation rules were to come before the court, that it might not, they might not get a favorable ruling from the court. The NCAA might not, and so there's there is definitely indication that a lot of their rules will, you know, not be uh, legal moving forward. Um, and Judge Kavanaugh specifically said the NCAA is not above the law, 
Um, but what he also did, which I think, first of all, the NCAA is going to rely on and are things that need to be considered moving forward is, is in saying that it's likely that the, the other compensation rules would, you know, not be legal. He also said, you know, there are other issues that we need to consider if, if the issue of say pay for play came in, um, there's the issue of title nine and how do, how do funds get divvied up between sports and that sort of thing. So, you know, it was sort of, and he's also signaled, look, this is, this is how we're, we're, reviewing this case based on the law that exists. But if Congress say were to create a new law and carve out an exemption for the NCAA, or if players were actually to be allowed to involve in collective bargaining, then then this sort of this court decision might change and our analysis might change. So there was sort of it it was not good for the NCAA and it put them in a position of really having to look very closely at its rules. Um, and really being afraid to sort of make rules from the national level. So they're doing now essentially what really many people have been saying they should do for a while, which is to sort of give the authority to the you know, conferences and have them decide most of the rules, because that at least enables there to be competition, because ultimately conferences compete. Um, and then it would give athletes choice in the marketplace. But right now, if the NCAA is making all the rules, athletes don't have a choice because the rules are the same everywhere. Um, and so rules limiting compensation and setting um, certain limits um, and price fixing, that's problematic from a national level. So that's kind of what the case did. And it set the stage for future litigation, uh, which, you know, doesn't necessarily resolve anything now. And I think it, it's what's unfortunate about that is that it, it sets everybody up to have to basically litigate further. Um, and, and Alston was a case that, that went on for nearly a decade. Um, O'Bannon was before that. So this has been years in the making and hundreds of millions of dollars spent in legal fees that ultimately aren't going to athletes. So, but all of these things got called out, all the NCA's arguments about, um, you know, this, the state of college sports and, and how much money they have, all of that was sort of forever, laid out and that the NCAA said we're not, or the Supreme Court said we're not buying it anymore, your arguments. So at this point, schools though, are not able to pay their athletes. Correct. Okay. Uh, it, it sounded like there was, before the Supreme Court ruling, states were jockeying to push legislation. I know Ohio being one of them, but there was like six or 10 others. Like how do, do in current stat, state right now, do certain states have advantage over other states in terms of uh, being able to get involved with name image likeness and their athletes. So it's interesting. I mean, so the Supreme Court case had absolutely nothing to do with NIL. Um, it, it basically, if anything, kind of gave the NCAA pause to say, we're not going to weigh in and be overly restrictive because we're going to be in violation of antitrust, most likely. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's been an interesting sort of debate in certain states, whether athletes are actually an advantage now that the NCAA has come out and said, okay, for the time being, until there is some sort of federal law or until we get it together and create some sort of NIL rule from our end, um, we're sort of, we're lifting uh, the restrictions and we're not gonna enforce it from the national level. But they put it to the conferences and the schools to say, all right, come up with your own rules around NIL. So essentially, 
that would allow some of these schools and states where there is no law to be less restrictive on athletes than some of the, the state bills, which frankly, a lot of the state bills are pretty restrictive as far as athletes go um, now and, and give schools a tremendous amount of power to make even more restrictive rules in their team contracts because a lot of them have carve outs there. Uh, a lot restrict things like, um, you know, signing deals with an alcohol company or a gambling right. company. Um, and so in effect, some the, the schools could could decide to be less restrictive on their athletes. I think what that also does in the meantime is sort of show, uh, give us evidence of, you know, what these deals are actually going to look like. Because I think the NCAA and schools have been really reluctant to open this up in part because their fear-mongering might not work. I think, you know, that somehow this is going to be hugely problematic if we lift so many of these restrictions. Um, because from the beginning, they've wanted to set restrictions on market value, market rates of, of athletes um, to say, basically, you can't be paid over a certain amount, um, which is sort of ridiculous if you think about it. I mean, there's there's no yeah. market rate for athletes, college athletes. It's never been done. They've, they've never been able to take advantage of their athletes. You have to look at what does a, a typical influencer get paid when, it, when we're talking about endorsements, right? And so I think I read in a Sports Illustrated piece that um, it's 80 cents per follower, right? I mean, is that, I, I've heard that that is like one area that how you can evaluate, you know, if you're looking at from the marketing and the brand perspective, it's really, well, what is the value? What is it, What is this reach? What is this influencer going to be able to give me? So it's not, I just don't see it as this is something that the, that some, anyone at the college level can set that value. I think it's what, what the social platform earns and how does that translate into sales? Like what's the bottom line? Right. I mean, on some level, not only is really nobody in the, um, who works in college athletics necessarily qualified to be sort of even postulating about what an athlete's yeah. NIL is worth, but you know, it is very individual and it's not just, you know, one size doesn't fit all when it comes to athletes, there are different individual qualities about every single athlete, different interests that they have. And, and different markets that they might reach. Right. And so they're, they're worth very different things to different brands. So to kind of have one rate is just unrealistic when oh, there yeah. are so many factors that go into what would make an athlete valuable. I mean, including um, the fact that an athlete might have diabetes would make an athlete more valuable to one brand over another. Um, right. Interest in dogs, you know, all of these things, what, what they're if they're an artist, if they do certain things in the community, um, and we're what kind of role model they are. Deals. We're going to talk about some of those deals. I know you and I spoke beforehand. I pulled some up. Uh, one last thing before we get into the deals. Uh, again, in terms of how this is going to play out in the future, you know, for instance, as a, as a former college athlete myself, our, the school that I graduated from sent uh, all the alumni athletes an email saying, you know, the NIL errors here, we are going to be following conference guidelines, and we're using influencer. And, you know, as somebody who is in the mindset of, well, ultimately deal flow, I believe is going to set precedent, you know, what can and can't happen and, and how this is work out, because are you going to say no to certain deals that come in that maybe don't fit your confined box? And also as a business owner that is in this space, what if I don't want to go through influencer? Is the app does does now is, isn't that violating some sort of antitrust law where the athlete's missing out on an opportunity because 
a third party is coming to them. Now, compliance can still, you know, check it to make sure that the opportunity that we're putting from the athlete isn't representing a tobacco company or a, a adult uh, entertainment industry or alcohol product. But do you see issues with that, you know, where a, a school is saying we're following certain guidelines and, um, you know, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think to the degree that that a school is specifically funneling athletes only onto one platform and not giving them the option to do anything else, I think that's problematic. Uh, I also think schools are extremely reluctant to weigh in at all. Uh, this is uncharted territory, and they've been given a tremendous amount of responsibility really at the last minute. Um, you know, and, and they were sort of operating under the belief, many of them were, that they were going to be following NCAA rules the NCAA who had, you know, a 30 page proposal, which is absolutely insane uh, and a different, different story. But like, I, I think that schools should really not be in the business of over-regulating. Um, they shouldn't, they should really shouldn't be in the business of, of reviewing athlete contracts. I mean, athletes are able to access people who can give them good advice um, and they, they need to be taught how to sort of select those people um, but I think that those people are in a much better position than the school and, and the school then gets into a position of running afoul of other areas of the law. Right. Um, they start interfering with contracts and being that heavily restrictive. Um, and I mean, as far personally, also, I think as far as limiting any sponsor that an athlete is going to make a deal with. I think the same rules should apply to a school. So if, if a school really has a problem with an athlete, um, you know, endorsing a gambling company or an alcohol company, then they shouldn't be allowed to do that either. They shouldn't be profiting <laughs> off of the same right. industries. And right. that's fine. That's Are fine. They? If you want to take the moral high ground, yeah. by all means, but the same standard should apply. It shouldn't be one for an athlete and one for the schools. So identified um, any schools that have sponsorships with those types of companies. I know Colorado has a gambling um, sponsorship. I forget what the company is, but they, I, they get a baseline amount and then they make, I think it's $30 per person who's a new, like uh, subscribes to the platform, each new person. So they're, they're, ba you know, yeah. they're getting people to engage in gambling. They're encouraging it because they profit from it and fine. And if, if that, you know, and, Look, gambling companies uh, have played a role in boosting revenue for sports, including women's sports. Um, and people who pay attention to those sports, oftentimes they pay attention because they have a stake in the game. And you know what? That's a different conversation. But, you know, the fact remains, if you're going to say that it's problematic for an athlete to engage in some of these things, then why on earth isn't it a problem for the schools? Um, so it should be the same standard. And I think that's also been contemplated in some of the federal legislation potentially. Well, I have highlighted here. Um, so one of the, one of the, you know, kind of biggest announcements after this was released, uh, the Cavender twins, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which, uh, they, let's see, uh, entered into two endorsement deals, uh, one with six star pro nutrition and another with boost mobile, um, the later a whopper of a deal of college standards. Again, this is where they're saying they have about 4 million followers on TikTok and Instagram. Um, and the estimated annual gross income for social media influencer is about 80 cents per follower, according to one of the advertising standards. So that's roughly $3 million in deals yearly. But it does note in this Sports Illustrated article that both of the deals were approved by Fresno State and officially signed Thursday. So like 
again, to me, it sounds like all of these schools are going to be doing some sort of checks and balances and approvals. And it's, it's, it's according to a lot of the state laws, to be honest. Um, but most of them, in fact, um, and some of them, I think it's Alabama, either Alabama or Mississippi. I'm pretty sure it's Alabama or no Mississippi requires, uh, athletes to submit um, to the school, give them notice seven days before they sign with any agent, <laughs> um, give them notice of the person. So it's, it's just, it's too much control over yeah. who they're allowed to talk to. Um, and it, and that's very different than saying you should, you know, be a resource to athletes. Should they want to come talk to you and ask you about, um, what you think about a particular agent? Uh, and maybe that's the point where a school needs to hire someone separately to handle that sort of thing. But right. it, it should they should be independent of the school. It shouldn't be someone who is, you know, on the compliance staff um, or has otherwise an alt, you know, a, a potential conflict of interest. You know, it's well, a problem. If you're a sports agent and you represent NFL talent, from what yeah. I understand, you have to be there, you have to be approved cert, there's certification. I mean, there, you probably have to be a lawyer, right? It's like <laughs> What are the standards of being a sports agent in this name, image, likeness era? Like, what what has to what do you have? To I do? I mean that that is one of the things that over the next several years is definitely going to be worked out. You do not have to be a lawyer to be an agent. Um, you most states you have to be registered in the state in order to be an agent in that state, uh, and that's much like being a lawyer in order to practice. Um, and there are you know there are certain exceptions that you can get, you know, waved into. But in, in terms of the NIL laws, most of them are pretty clear that you have to be a licensed agent or attorney in that specific state in order to um, work with athletes who attend schools in that state. And already we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, we call shady things happen on the, on the part of agents and attorneys um, who are potentially going to put athletes in a really bad position moving forward, um, you know, should anybody go after them? And another issue too is, is the enforcement mechanism because, you know, I've talked to individuals within the state who have, you know, kind of expressed that there is no enforcement mechanism for agents who are not licensed in the state. Like they don't have a way to punish them. At least with attorneys, you can actually go after their bar license in another state. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of agents who are not registered at all type thing, it, it's very difficult to sort of police that more. Uh, and that's, that's something they're going to need to figure out. Um, they're going to have to. You, know, you and I know. There's some very predatory agents and attorneys, yeah. um, unfortunately. And, and that's been something, I mean, that was one of the things that's always been discussed. But quite frankly, we've been talking about this for a while. And the fact that that specific issue hasn't been sort of further address and that that wasn't the first thing that you know the NCAA decided to take on who in my opinion could be in charge of um, you know licensing agents if they want to control that space and make sure that that agents are complying with certain standards in order to access athletes I'm okay with that I think that that may be you know <laughs> that makes a lot of sense in terms of what they would police um, but they shouldn't be they should not be policing the the contracts of the athletes. That is a problem to me. Right. Uh, it, who's facilitating those contracts? Because you and I know, not without without naming any names, I think if you look into some of these high profile deals, you'll start to ask yourself questions. Hey, how is this person representing? How on earth are they representing them in a the state? How are they? <laughs> yeah. Saying, look into it all. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's, that's all we're gonna say. It's uh, it's interesting.
-hmm. I just honestly, my, I don't want to see athletes caught up in this. And I, and that is my, that's my biggest thing. And I, and I think especially, you know, agents is one thing attorneys like know the law (laughs) Do not put athletes in a bad position. Um, that's my feeling. All right. So personal situation, you know, the athlete book works closely with, um, a reputable, uh, mouth guard company and they want to do a deal. Um, and they would like the athlete book to promote it where they generate a, a custom affiliate URL link for the athlete and any mouth guard purchased through that link, the athlete earns $5 per mouth guard. I'm not a sports agent. I'm not an attorney. I'm, I'm someone who owns a software company that can facilitate this. I'm in the state of Delaware. What am I allowed to or not allowed to do? And I think on the company side, that's less heavily restricted. It really is applied to the agents and the attorneys wanting them to be licensed in the state. Um, The idea being also, you know, those are the individuals that are supposed to be looking at the deals and making sure what you're doing is above board. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So, you know, I think for companies, I think companies should be aware of what the state laws are because they shouldn't want to put athletes in a bad position either. And, and, and that puts a lot more pressure on them when there's, there are 50 States and different schools now that are having, you know, their own rules. Um, And it's, it's why I think you see certain conferences starting to take it at the conference level. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's right now it's an information thing. And because the schools are so behind in a lot of the things that they were doing, um, there are sort of, there's some unknowns right now. And all of this is subject to change. And the second that there's a federal rule, um, you know, they'll, they'll have a preemption clause in it and that will, you know, be the law of the land. So this is, this is going to, it's going to be an adjustment period for the next several years, I think, as all of these things sort of get worked out. Um, But definitely for companies, you know, I, I think be aware of the school that the athlete attends that you're, you know, kind of doing a deal with, um, and, and be checking those things. It's important. I think it's important on both ends, but it's also why athletes, you know, need that sort of representation to make sure that, um, they're, they're sort of staying aware of all of the rules and not getting themselves into trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, two deals that I like to bring up just kind of pulled at my heartstrings, you know, just for anyone who's creative, who's an athlete, uh, now there's new there's new openings. So we have Will Ulmer, Ulmer, I believe he's a musician. Uh, Rasun, uh, sorry, Rasun Kasadi, artist who you know before this couldn't really market their either their musical uh, you know mm-hmm. efforts, ambitions with their by their name um, or you know sell their artwork under their name. Um, right. Talk to me about this. Any thoughts there? I mean, this for me, it was what I personally was also the most excited about when it came to NIL and and also why I would try to steer the conversation away from just the endorsement deals and and especially pay for play, which this isn't. Um, But the fact that this really enables athletes to freely be their full selves. Um, And, you know, for Will Ulmer, he went by the stage name of Lucky Bill. So to, you know, to avoid using his own name because the, the NCAA wouldn't allow it. Um, if he was profiting because of his affiliation and his reputation as an athlete, um, this is a, it's a, it's a cool opportunity for athletes to really market all the different things that they're interested in and, and take advantage of that and, and engage with it more. 
Because I think for so long, athletes had to sort of set aside everything else that wasn't an athlete, you know, that wasn't the athlete side of them. And I think over time that really kind of, it drains you a little bit because those other things that are part of, part of your personality, they, that, you know, sort of restore you and give you energy are important. People, athletes who are artists and, you know, musicians kind of need that creative outlet because doing the same thing over and over again can just, it can be draining. It's, it's monotonous and they need all of those aspects. So I think it's really cool. And I'm excited to see more athletes do that. I think you're seeing more athletes with, um, you know, their own, their own brands, their own clothing lines. Um, you know, there are, and it, it's showing how multifaceted athletes really are. And I think, I think athletes know that about themselves and about their teammates. Um, but I don't think that the public has always been so aware of that. You know, you're kind of put in one box as an athlete. Yeah. And this is, this is an opportunity for everyone to kind of let all of their personality shine in different ways. Well, I hope uh, Rasan and Will are listening to this because know that the athlete book will definitely would love to do a deal with you guys, um, have you into our virtual events and uh, help promote what you are all doing. Um, another deal I love to talk about because it's, we recently, the athlete book announced our partnership on LinkedIn with um, OpenSea, which is the largest NFT marketplace. We've started to see some, um, some announcements with Mackenzie Milton, Kaivan Thibodeau at University of Oregon um, that are doing NFT drops. And I don't know how familiar you are with NFT drops, but what I thought was interesting is um, Kaivan, and again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I know he's like a top five <laughs> NFL pick too, so shame on me. <laughs> um, but I look, because he actually has uh, minted his NFT. I think it's still an auction as at the time of us recording this. And I was looking at the artwork and I noticed like you didn't see the Oregon, uh, University of Oregon branding. There was like a little circle. It wasn't the exact same. It was in the, in the background. What are the rules around creating digital art with, um, you know, this, any of the school branding, are you able to use that in any of the marketing with whatever you do, whether you're marketing yourself as a camps or doing an NFT um, thoughts there? Gosh, it, it, so, so much of it depends and that's such a lawyer answer. <laughs> um, but I mean, as a general rule, you want to avoid using another um, entity's marks, their, their trademarks, their logos, um, their name, um, you can, there's always the opportunity to ask permission before doing those. And, and I, I always want to mention that because it, it's not that you can never under any circumstances use some of these things, but generally speaking, if you're, if you're using something in a commercial context, you want to avoid, um, running into any trouble, running afoul of that by, by using marks that you are not, um, you, you don't have a license to use. Right. Uh, that said, I mean, with the sort of influencer and, and all these branding companies kind of working with schools, schools have, have sort of been seeing the benefit of also allowing athletes to use their marks in conjunction with things that they're doing, because it, it's a benefit to both. Um, and, you know, some of the state laws specifically uh, sort of enable schools to do that. Um, I think it's interesting because also this is an area that you know, many of the laws have specifically said you cannot use a university's logos, you know, it, along with your NIL um, stuff. And I mean, intellectual property law covers that. So yes. you can't, you can't 
you cannot use um, another um, company's brand in a in a confusing way. You know that that implies sort of an endorsement by them. Um, right. Unless you have uh, clearance, right? You know, and especially with right. NFTs, right? With yeah. NFTs, when you drop that, um, you know, there can be royalties on the back end, uh, depending mm-hmm. on how you set it up. So you know, or with an NFT, you have a primary and a secondary wallet, and so when you put your NFT in and you mint it to, to, to OpenSea, whatever uh, blockchain you're using, the initial sale goes into the primary wallet. And then when that NFT is resold, it goes into the secondary wallet for the royalties. So, you know, one of the things that we recommend and some of the education that we're gonna be doing with the OpenSea is maybe, uh, you know, that athlete now works with the media department, the legal department at University of Oregon or whatever university they are and say, okay, we're gonna, how about this? We split the uh, primary wallet fees and then I earn the royalties thereafter. I don't know. I mean, they, but are- no, I mean, those, I, I see no reason why those deals can't happen. I think yeah. schools are sort of always in this position of wanting to simplify things as much as possible. And so I think on the front end, it's, it's easier for them to say, this is absolutely against the rules and this is fine. Um, and, and also, you know, acknowledging the fact that if, if you're, you know, signing multiple deals with, with athletes, um, and sort of negotiating all those individual contracts, that's more of time and resources. And you already have an overwhelmed compliance department, but those things don't have to happen at that level. Uh, and there are ways around it. And I think that as schools start to realize the real potential for them to sort of also collect some of the, the funds that are, that are going around, um, they're, they're going to be in that space even more. And they're, they're going to be, uh, signing deals in conjunction with athletes because it, again, it benefits everybody, um, and it's it's advertising for them just as much as it is the athletes who are signing any of these endorsement deals. Um, so you know, and I think definitely in in the NFT space, I think having a royalty component of it. I mean, there's there's no reason why you can't right. work that out. Um, and, and also, schools. I hope again, through the, the live event education that we have, that they start creating their own NFT strategy because it's a I'm great sure way. They will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you own that iconic media, um, yeah, you start creating a strategy around it. And like I said, selfish plug for the athlete book, but through our uh, educational partnership with OpenSea, we hope to uh, provide guidance in that space. Moving on um, and getting close to wrapping up here, but what did what happened with Masterpiece son, uh, Hersey Miller? I believe he's at an HBCU school. What kind of deal was done there? I believe he signed a four-year, two million dollar contract. Um, yeah, and, and and look, this is this is a connection. Obviously, he had like through his his dad, and and those deals are going to happen. Um, and what's interesting is, I mean, he attends an HBCU. Where does he go? And- is he at Jackson State. I think that's, I think so. I believe so. If I'm not mistaken. That's, that's Deion Sanders. Uh, he coaches the football team there. All right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, going out of that area. Yeah. It, it, I think it's an interesting lesson in there are all sorts of reasons why a brand is going to want to sign with an athlete. And, you know, there are plenty of people that, that want to sign with athletes who go to HBCUs. If you even look back further, I mean, the first, the first athlete who um, started making money on their NIL was an NAIA player. Um, I think she played volleyball and she over COVID like had started her own, um, either YouTube channel or was, uh, something, I think maybe TikTok doing 
um, you know, DIY projects and that picked up a following. So again, there are all sorts of reasons why an athlete is valuable. And I think what's interesting about this particular deal is that initially there are some, there are some naysayers early on saying, I want to see the the specifics. I don't believe it. Um, and then equally you had people who are saying, see, it's starting already. This is an outrageous deal. And, you know, this is above market rate for an athlete. And, you know, I mean, it's like, well, who's to say what's, you know, above market rate and why do we care? Um, you know, is, is the world ending? If, if this athlete is worth that much to a brand and they're willing to pay it, why is anybody else stepping in truly? Who does it really benefit? So, um, I, I think you'll see some more of those deals. Um, and you're, you're going to see a lot more athletes getting, um, clever about pitching themselves to different brands and, and determining what sort of sets them apart. Uh, and, and I think that's the biggest piece of advice that I could give to athletes is, you know, think about who you are, what matters to you. And, yeah. and when you're looking to partner with brands also like think about what they represent. Don't just jump at the first deal that you get, you know, make sure that it's in line with who you are and, and what you are about. Um, and, you know, and things like, I mean, the athlete that signed a, a deal with uh, Petco, who has Pet a smart. dog, you know, Pet an smart. animal lover. PetSmart, Pet sorry. You're right. Trey Knox, I believe it was. Yeah. And I mean, so it's, it's stuff like that. I mean, the, the. Loves dogs that, or animals, right? Right. Um, and why not? And, and even the smaller deals, like if I would have loved to have been sponsored by a cereal company in, um, you know, when I was a college athlete or anything that was going to provide me free, you know, anything. Right. Um, and, and those deals, those deals are available. If people yeah. are, are creative and clever, they're not all going to be these massive, uh, monetary deals, but yeah. there, there are plenty of valuable things out there that, um, you know, and, and plenty of brands that are, are willing to provide some of that stuff to get, you know, some advertising and, and benefit in that way. All right. This is what I'm going to say. Athletes, listen to me. Okay. <laughs> Look, get onto the athlete book and tell, tell us what your preferences are and your likes and your loves and, and just do the career discovery, figure it out. And then we will be able to help facilitate, connect you to the people that want to use you. There's a selfish plug for the athlete book. <laughs> Hop in there. Um, last one. Let's talk about uh, Mitch Lightfoot, uh, 1-800-JUNK. <laughs> I think he was voted like messiest locker uh, on the team, which is hilarious. So, I mean, it's just, it's an example of, first of all, just how I think funny and creative some of these athletes are. Uh, and, and immediately it made me think of some of my teammates that were like the more outrageous ones on the team, like what kind of things they would have come up with in their heads to push themselves in different ways. This was so clever. What I mean, so playing off again, playing off of the quirks of who you are, um, to make your, I mean, what a, what a, what a funny story for that brand to also tell, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're not just, don't think of us just in one box either, you know, we, we, whatever. So I think it, it's, I think some of these deals are just really cool in terms of thinking about the possibilities, um, getting athletes to really look closer at themselves and, and, you know, take advantage of some of the things that some people don't even think are, are that great. Like having a messy locker room. Yeah, I, I like picture the person that's in charge of content strategy for a brand. I mean, this just opens up the door for them to start, you know, looking through situations like what Mitch Lightfoot was able to yeah. capitalize on, which I think well, is great. And I think it's those stories that you don't hear sometimes like, you know, I, 
thinking about those, those random athletes that do something really cool or amazing or involved in their community. And that's a really valuable story for a brand. And it, those aren't stories that necessarily get told as much because we're usually focused on the top athletes and who's getting drafted and all that other stuff. Um, but there are some athletes doing some amazing things out there. Um, and it's, it's, I think that's what, that's what some of these brands are really targeting is these sort of niche, um, you know, areas. Yeah. And you know what, that is what we want to dive into with what do you think about this NIL deal on the well-played podcast? And I don't know, Maddie, maybe I can like coerce you to be a (laughs) a regular co-host here. Um, No, it's awesome. And you know what, there's a lot of athletes that really just don't even care about the name image likeness thing. And some of them want to work on, uh, you know, maybe in New York City, maybe they want to do sales and trading. And if they do, they should check out um, the Athlete Book's new partner and post with Royal Bank of Canada. As of the time of us recording this, they have 20 internship uh, positions available in New York City in sales and trading. Get this, Maddie, making an $85,000 salary during that 10-week period. Um, and the goal, obviously, for that internship is to get the full-time job. <laughs> a lot more than any of my internships. <laughs> Everybody I tell that to, they're like, oh, that I got. That internship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Royal Bank of Canada, we'll, we'll dedicate this episode to you um, and look forward to the next uh, NIL conversation that we have um, where we will uh, highlight what Amazon's offering because they are also partnered with the Athlete Book. And so Maddie, Solomon, um, anything that we can plug for you, maybe the recent documentary you were just featured in or what else? What, can, what, can, what do you have there that we can plug? I mean, yeah, you can follow my podcast, Speaking of Athletes, um, or my YouTube channel, um, Y Channel. Uh, and I try to post, you know, informational um, videos and podcasts to kind of help athletes and, and to give them things to sort of think about in this new era and just in navigating um, college athletics in general. And for any time that that is video, uh, the Athlete Book and Maddie, we are working together in collaboration to produce the the golden nuggets of uh, information put into Maddie Solomon's course which would be available on the athlete book. So stay tuned as we will probably produce a first version of that by um, fall. So, and we have to get Maddie, obviously, uh, good luck with the studying over the next course of the next few weeks. I know (laughs) you're like, let's just first things first. So I'll let you get back to studying, but I'm so excited to be uh, a collaborative partner with you and and, uh, love everything that you have to say and the guidance that you give athletes and parents of athletes. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always fun. <laughs> All right. That's it for the Well-Played Path podcast, focusing on what do you think of this deal? We'll talk to you all later.